to the Script PhD podcast, where we shine a spotlight on science and technology in entertainment and media. I'm ScriptPhD.com founder Jovana Grbic. Join me for smart, thought-provoking discussions with the brilliant scientists and creative visionaries finding unity between the analytical and the artistic. Joining ScriptPhD.com is Dr. Gary Small, a professor of psychiatry at the UCLA Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. He is a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, PBS, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. Scientific American magazine named him one of the world's leading innovators in science and technology. He's also the best-selling author of six books, including The Memory Bible, as well as the recent The Naked Lady Who Stood on Her Head. Dr. Small, thank you for joining the Script PhD podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Ever since I read the book, I'm very fascinated to ask you this first question. At the very beginning of The Naked Lady, you talk about the unwarranted pessimism about psychiatry, thanks in part to the mainstream media, which has hurt people's ability to fully embrace or get the most out of therapy treatment. Could you elaborate on that statement? Many of us are afraid of psychiatry. We're concerned that the psychiatrist will peer into our minds or control our minds. There's an old joke I remember the best way to tell if somebody's a psychiatrist at a cocktail party is the person who either stares right at you or looks right through you, depending on whichever makes you most uncomfortable. So I think, you know, part of this stems from the media, but part of it also stems from our own discomfort with our psychological struggles. I mean, one way to avoid looking at ourselves is to point our fingers at psychiatry or psychology and say, well, this is a bad field and uh, it's their problem, it's not mine. And what we see in the media are a lot of caricatures of psychiatry. I know a fellow psychiatrist and he said that when his wife would tell people that she married him, the first thing they'd say was, oh, was he your psychiatrist? So, you know, this is this is out there in the culture, and people are perceiving these unethical behaviors by psychiatrists. On the other hand, there are some interesting depictions that might be a bit more accurate and really educate people. One of the reasons that we wrote The Naked Lady, who stood on her head, is to try to destigmatize the field, to humanize it, to help people see what's going on in the psychiatrist's mind, how a psychiatrist thinks and diagnoses and tries to help people. And yet, at the same time, it seems like movies and television, especially in the last 20 years, seem to have really embraced psychiatry and this relationship between patients and their doctors. The content seems everywhere. Why the disconnect to real life then, do you think? The purpose of the media is to sell ad space and ad time. So they have a pressure to entertain, to draw people in, And their efforts are not to present psychiatry in a good light. It's really to get people to watch their show or to listen to their show. And I think that in part drives that disconnect. That can be changed. I think that the American Psychiatric Association and other organizations can lobby Hollywood 
And there have been efforts like that from different groups. For example, efforts to try to get young people to stop using drugs, where policymakers will meet with Hollywood producers and writers to try to help them become more mindful of the issues so those kinds of public health messages can keep their way into the mass media. Any particular favorites to you in TV or film along the lines of accurate or nuanced portrayal of psychiatrists, especially along the lines of your case studies? One that comes to mind is the therapist that Judd Hirsch portrayed in Ordinary People. And I think what hit me the most about that, it was his tremendous empathy for the patient. And in my book, that I think is a theme, is how empathy, that ability to recognize another person's emotional point of view and convey that recognition to the other, other person, how healing that is in human relationships and in the therapeutic relationship. Let's talk about the self-titled chapter in the book, the one that describes the naked lady that stood on her head. At the very beginning, you talk about the dreaded Room 6 back in the hospital that you interned in, where you basically contain the psychotic patients in the ER. And it's funny because before reading this, I always thought the medical shows exaggerated these psych consults for dramatic value. But actually, real life can be just as dramatic. It was very dramatic. And uh, when I opened the little peephole in Room 6 and I saw a naked lady standing on her head, I immediately closed it, and I thought to myself, now, which chapter in my book tells me what to do in this situation? <laughs> so it, it can be quite dramatic, and but when I start thinking about one case and then another, then a third one comes to mind. And there really are these very unusual circumstances that psychiatrists are thrown into, particularly beginning psychiatrists who have the least experience. They're often confronted with the most daunting cases, and I think this is exactly one of those cases. So I had to figure out what to do, and, and the first thing I did was to ask for help, and I got a nurse to come in and some of the security guards, and we got some clothing on this young woman and got her to stop standing on her head, and throughout the story, you can see how difficult it was for me to get her to talk, even to do an examination, mm -hmm. and how uncomfortable it was with everybody in the room watching me fumble around trying to figure out what to do. And eventually I stumbled upon the diagnosis. She seemed thirsty, and I gave her a glass of orange juice, and she immediately snapped out of it. And I thought, oh, what pithy thing, thing did I just say to get her to talk? And I realized it was the orange juice. She actually had hypoglycemia from taking too much insulin, and it caused a delirious state where she couldn't communicate. And I think people will be surprised, as in many of these chapters, that this was only the beginning of her story, because in this case, she was a young actress, and there was actually a lot more to it. And I think that's what's interesting. When you really delve in, it's never just the orange juice. That was the beginning of unraveling much more depth to what the patient's actual struggle was. Yeah, I think this is the, the challenge, but also what's so intriguing and interesting and fulfilling about psychiatry is that it's not just the mind making the body sick or the body making the mind sick, but also the underlying psychological themes and how you can help people try to understand what's going on below the surface. 
It's, one thing that drew me to psychiatry was uh, how our minds work, how it's just so fascinating that we would go to such extremes to avoid mental pain. Now, sometimes our defenses, our psychological defenses to deal with that pain work, but often as we age, the, the childhood ways of dealing with this discomfort don't work, and that's where a psychiatrist or a therapist can really be helpful. Yeah, and sometimes they even make you want to cut off your left hand. That's in the book, too. Just a fascinating case study that you guys will have to read about. And speaking of that, are you by any chance watching the HBO series In Treatment? And what do you think of that portrayal of psychotherapy? I've watched different seasons, and I have to admit I I haven't been keeping up with this season. I feel as if I haven't been going to my therapist and I've been bad in some way because I think... It, it does take uh, some commitment uh, to get into any kind of TV show. You know, it's interesting. You get to know the characters, and my wife and I, we sometimes watch different dramatic series, and when they get canceled, we often feel cheated. Like, my God, we invested emotionally in these characters. Now they're taking them away. I think in previous seasons, it's interesting to me that I would tend to enjoy certain days of the week depending on the particular patient. And, of course, the day of the week that most fascinated me was the day that Gabriel Byrne went to his own therapist. She was terrific, and this new therapist seems quite interesting, too, and I'd like to get into the show this year to understand it better. Many of the vignettes in the book seem to have a component of influence from modern culture. You have a chapter about a compulsive shopaholic, or another chapter about a mom who literally turns into WebMD in concert with her medical school son. So how much of today's culture do you find exacerbates or alters what would be naturally occurring psychoses? Yeah, I think we're products and sometimes victims of our culture. And what we're seeing today with all the new technology is in our face from moment to moment. It, symptoms spread very rapidly. I mean, we've studied mass hysteria, for example, where groups of often children get physically sick, and it's a psychological cause. Now, these kinds of outbreaks can spread over the Internet, where you have suicide clusters that are transmitted over the Internet and all kinds of issues like that. So I think culture is important, but a lot of times uh, there are genetic bases for psychiatric illnesses. So you mentioned the young man who had the urge to cut off his left hand. Now, this kind of body integrity identity disorder is very rare and uh, likely has a genetic component. And something related to it that we're probably more familiar with called body dysmorphic disorder, where people just are not comfortable with a facial feature or something, some aspect of their body, and often have multiple surgeries, cosmetic surgeries, to try to bring about that body image that they strive for. Now, a lot of people think that that disorder is culturally bound, that it's, it's because of all thin people, the models, or the way people are portrayed in magazines. But in fact, when it's been studied, Systematically, we find the incidence is pretty consistent from culture to culture. And in fact, it's equivalent in men versus women. You'd think that women in our society have more pressure. So I think culture is important. We need, need to understand it. But there still is a biology and a genetic predisposition to many of these illnesses. 
So just out of curiosity, have any of the patients read the book and recognized themselves? And what, if any, feedback have you gotten? I haven't gotten feedback from particular patients. I have gotten feedback from doctors, and it's been extremely positive. And I, I sent some copies to some of my old colleagues back in Boston and people I had trained with. They are characters in the book. I've disguised their names, and I'm sure that some of them will recognize themselves. And last but not least, touching on your very interesting medical research, your specialty is Alzheimer's and aging. And in fact, tying it into the book, one of the most poignant chapters by far is where you describe having to watch your dearest mentor succumb to dementia, which touched on you very personally. Obviously, this topic is salient to a rapidly aging Western population and with no cure as of yet for plaque-based neurodegenerative diseases. Is it in fact true that keeping the brain active, doing these mental puzzles and neurological exercises, can actually stave off aging diseases? Our own research has found that the brain is very sensitive to any kind of stimuli. And we can teach even older people to alter their neural circuitry in a very brief period of time. We did an experiment, your brain on Google, where we had people in their 60s search online for the first time. And we found very little activity. But when they practiced for an hour a day for just a week, there was significant increases in frontal lobe activity in parts of the brain that control decision-making and short-term memory. So we can train the brain very quickly. There is circumstantial evidence that brain, mental stimulation is associated with a lower risk for Alzheimer's. But the cause and effect relationship hasn't been proven definitively. On the other hand, we do have a lot of evidence showing that those of us who are middle-aged or older and can't find their keys or mm -hmm. can't remember the name of the movie or the book they just read, that we can help people with these age-related memory complaints, and we can teach them memory techniques that will improve memory performance in everyday life, and those benefits can be sustained for years. And actually, I think people can read more about that in your best-selling book, The Memory Bible. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, so we, Gigi and I, uh, Gigi Borgen is my co-author as well as my wife, and we've written a number of books, uh, the first one being the Memory Bible, another one, the Memory Prescription, that focus on these kinds of issues. And, in fact, we're busy working on another book right now that will come out in 2012 about Alzheimer's prevention. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Listening to the Script PhD podcast. I'm Jovana Grbic. Our theme music was composed by Dave Mendez. For more conversations with groundbreaking innovators at the interface of science and popular culture, subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes and SoundCloud. Or find a full archive on our blog, scriptphd.com, by selecting the podcast category. See you guys next time.